we've sort of deinstitutionalized religious sentiment, sort of turned the American religious center over to Oprah Winfrey and Joel Osteen and Eat, Pray, Love and this kind of Christian-ish with a little New Age mixed-in mentality. Hi, you're listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Mensch. In this podcast, I interview scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. The point of the podcast is to have an intellectual exchange on political, civic, and social issues in American life. Many of the guests on the podcast are part of our school's speaker series, which invites both liberal progressives and conservative voices that we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Ross Douthit. He is a columnist for the New York Times and the author of To Change the Church, Pope Francis and the Future of Catholicism, as well as Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. The interview is broken up into two parts. You're listening to the first part, and the second will be released tomorrow. In the first episode, Ross and I discuss what makes American religious culture and American religious history so unique. We debate how to understand the odd religiosity of so-called woke liberalism, and correspondingly, the empty Christianity of Trump and some of his supporters. We discuss whether there is any actual intellectual diversity in the mainstream media. I put forward an argument about the media that Ross pushes back on, which results in a discussion of media bias, and whether people do in fact want the echo chambers that they find themselves in today. It's a good exchange. Ross Douthit. All right, so I'm Duncan Minch. You're listening to the Keeping It Civil podcast. And I'm here with Ross Douthit, which is, I have to say, quite an honor. A rare a, a rare privilege, isn't it? Yeah, for me. I can, yeah, I can see yeah. it in your eyes. I'm excited. You're excited. I am excited. Yeah, that's I am. good. Going through all the things I wanted to ask you, it was very hard to kind of narrow down. i got to choose very wisely because I only have an hour here. So I want to start right off the bat. We are, in your mind, a nation of heretics, but specifically Christian heretics, right? Pilgrims, Quakers, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's too many examples to even name. Now, I sense that you have kind of mixed feelings about this. There's a part of you that maybe appreciates that we're a nation of Christian heretics, maybe has a little bit of admiration for it. But at the same time— Patriotic pride, yeah. It seems like there's an undercurrent of real frustration and— at the minimum, ennui maybe for the old world. Well, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic and any Roman Catholic is going to have mixed feelings about heresy that sort of comes with the religious territory. I mean, the way I tend to think about it, my sort of view of American history is that institutional forms of Christianity, including eventually my own Catholic Church, have existed in a kind of creative tension with this kind of freelancing, do-it-yourself, high I'm Joseph Smith and, you know, the angel gave me the tablets, I'm going to tell you what's going on kind of spirit. And that that has been often tremendously healthy, that it's good for established churches to have to deal with competition and challenges and sort of people kind of on the spiritual fringes pushing at them a little bit. But then it's also good 
for the sort of do-it-yourself Emersonian individualists to exist in a landscape where there was a denominational Protestantism for a long time, where there was eventually a powerful and influential Catholic Church sort of carrying all of the 2,000 years of Christian tradition that it carries within its walls. That was sort of a good dynamic for American religion and that a lot of the things that even secular observers sort of admire about American culture, this sort of strong communitarianism, the role of the religious congregation in sort of political and associational life and so on, all of that was connected to this mix of, if you will, orthodoxy and heresy. So the ennui that creeps in or the anxiety or depression or whatever you want to call it comes from the fact that basically since the 1960s, the institutional side of that equation has really fallen on hard times. The institutional, what do you mean by that? I mean that basically the story of America since about 1960 is the decline of almost every institutional form of not just Christian but religious faith generally. And this isn't the same thing as secularization exactly. It's not that Americans have all stopped believing in God. It's not that they've stopped praying. It's not that they've stopped believing in the supernatural. In fact, if you look at some opinion polls, there's more people today report some personal experience Mm. of God than they did in 1955 or something. That's surprising. It is and it isn't. I mean, when you think about it, the 60s sort of were in their own way a kind of Great Awakening moment. It was just not a particularly Christian Great Awakening. It was the counterculture. It was the drug culture. It was Eastern religion coming in. It was meditation and Buddhism and all these things. And so that you use that phrase because I have this in my notes. This idea that the 60s, the new left, the new age birth that you just kind of described is another sort of Great Awakening. And I don't think we're the first to use that term. I think Tom Wolf might have actually alluded to the idea yeah, I th- that I it think. was a third grade. Somebody all, has. All good phrases right. are stolen from Tom right. Wolf. Yeah. That's right. a safe bet. And there are other people, I think, who chart it as the fourth great awakening. So there are great awakenings right. prior. Going along with this, it almost seems like there's this kind of built in desire to kind of disrupt the existing order and a kind of outburst of creative religious fervor right. that goes in cycles in American culture. And, and that, are we that, living through another one or is this just an extension? I, I think we lived through one. I think the 60s and 70s in good and bad ways were that. And it produced a lot of the religious traditions that are still with us today. The growth of, say, Pentecostalism was sort of accelerated by the 60s and 70s. Charismatic Christianity really takes off in that period. So it's not just sort of the new age and things like that. But the pattern in prior Great Awakening was generally that you would have this kind of individual freelance, let's shake things up and do things new approach. And then that would create the next generation of religious institutions. So like the classic example is the Methodist Church, which today is the most sort of mainline traditional Protestant church. Methodism in the late 18th and early 19th century, they were the radicals. They were the people sort of ranging around on the frontier and holding the tent revivals and everything else and challenging the Congregationalist and Episcopalian establishment. And then at a certain point, the Methodist Church itself became a kind of effective and powerful institution in American life. And what I feel like hasn't 
happened to the same extent this time is the either emergence or renewal of actual institutions. So just to take my own Catholic example, the Catholic Church went through this period of sort of convulsion and chaos in the 60s and 70s where, you know, you had liberalization, you had the mass translated into English, you had priests leaving their orders and nuns leaving their monasteries and everything seemed to be up for grabs. And then thereafter, instead of creating some new vitality in some part of the church, the church over the last 30 years has sort of settled into this kind of slow, stagnant decay punctuated by sex abuse scandals. That's one particular example, but I think it's just sort of a good case study in general that we've sort of deinstitutionalized religious sentiment, sort of turned the American religious center over to Oprah Winfrey and Joel Osteen and Eat, Pray, Love and this kind of Christian-ish with a little new age mixed in mentality. And that's a sort of weak center. It doesn't do a lot of institutional or communitarian work. It isn't particularly theologically serious. I mean, that's, so that's, yeah, so that's, let's, that's let's where the, my, that's where the ennui well, so and doubt that comes in. If I'm understanding your thought process and your framework correctly, you believe that there was a Christian center from the very get go, which is hard to argue with, from prior to even the American founding, you know, from the colonies onward. Although I'm sure you would recognize that there was a great deal of prejudice and persecution that went on in terms of building that As center. center I mean, that's what centers, centers Catholics tend being, to do. Catholics being, you know, very yep. much excluded until, you know, however we want to chart it, but certainly we're by the middle of the 19th century. And so this kind of compromise position between mainline Protestantism and Catholicism and eventually Judaism that becomes this agreed upon religious center of Euro-America, for lack of a better phrase. The Judeo-Christian idea. Yep. That phrase. But that phrase doesn't really start to get used until 1940s. Yeah, yep. somewhere around there. But what I think is interesting to a certain extent to go along with this notion is that comes to a kind of semi-peaceful coexistence by the 1940s, definitely by the 1950s, but really starts to come under threat, as we were just describing, quite quickly by the 60s. Yep. And then all of the things that you were just describing, whatever we want to call this kind of new left, new age slash Oprah-like now. Right. Oprah, uh, Oprah o- now. O- o- Oprah's right. the, the latest iteration right. of it. This is the kind of the soft version of it. The third great awakening transition, fourth great awakening, however we want to say. That sort of thing started to challenge it quite quickly. That kind of golden age of the Judeo-Christian center really only had a heyday for maybe 25 years. Right. Historically, you have multiple centers. You have a kind of congregationalist Anglican center in the colonial era that gets challenged by Quakers and deists and free thinkers, which continues down to the revolutionary era. And I mean, this is very much like sort of wild generalization, so I apologize. <laughs> but then after that, you have the Great Awakenings of the 19th century, which, which sort of incorporate the Methodists into this beginnings of the mainline Protestant center, which then cracks up with the Civil War, is sort of reconstituted in the late 19th century and starts very slowly to incorporate Catholicism, cracks up again with the modernist fundamentalist controversies in the 20s and 30s, is reconstituted in the post-war religious revival, the sort of Judeo-Christian moment with Billy Graham and Reinhold Mm -hmm. Niebuhr and Catholicism sort of at its demographic and peak, and then cracks up again. But in this story I'm telling, which Again, it's sort of crude generalizations, but I think broadly accurate. You would expect there to be a reconstitution after the crack up. And we are now 60 years almost away from 1960. And the reconstitution we've gotten is, again, I think this sort of therapeutic me generation spirituality Mm -hmm. that people like 
Wolf and Robert Bella and others sort of identified in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It's just we've just sort of stuck with it. And Christopher Lash for sure. Right. And it's yeah. not the worst thing in the world. It's a be nice to people, take care of yourself. There's some kind of God who loves you, spirituality. There are certainly worse religions in the world. But there's an incredible me focus. Yes. You know, as going back to Tom Wolf called it the me generation, right? right? And Lash would have called, you know, the culture of narcissism and this yep. sort of thing. And so if you read books about the 50s, the sort of social critiques from that era, the man in the gray flannel suit, the lonely crowd, mm-hmm. they feel like they only apply to the 50s and don't apply at all by 1975. Mm-hmm. But if you read Wolf and Lash and Bella, these sort of social observers describing the new, especially the new religious landscape of the 70s, that's still our landscape Oh, they feel like today. they were written. It's still totally relevant. And that, to me, feels like a kind of religious and otherwise stagnation that maybe we're going to break out of at some point, but we haven't yet. Tell me how, in your view, we get from that to contemporary reaction to it, which I think we would probably both agree Donald Trump is part of. I don't know. See, I or think do you I, not see it that way? I'm not sure that Trump is a reaction to that. I think that there was an attempted reaction, which was, well, there were a couple attempted reactions. There was the religious left in the 70s that basically tried to sort of craft a new social gospel building on the civil rights era and sort of taking the civil rights model of Christian political activism and applying it to environmentalism and the nuclear freeze movement and all of those things. And that religious left basically couldn't figure out a reason to stay religious. It just sort of collapsed into a general sort of secularized left without sort of building permanent institutional forms. So the religious left was real, but it sort of remained permanent weak. So then you had religious conservatism, which basically said, look, the Protestant mainline and that old 50s consensus is gone, but we can build a new religious center out of an alliance between evangelicals and Roman Catholics, right? And so this was the worldview as a conservative and a convert to Catholicism that sort of was there around me when I was 20 or 25, just starting to write about politics. And it sort of reached its apotheosis under George W. Bush. But it didn't work either. Catholicism was not not nearly as vital as the partisans of John Paul II wanted to believe. Evangelicalism sort of grew a bit but hit this cultural ceiling and never sort of gained the mainline church's credibility with the elite. There was no evangelical Reinhold Niebuhr or Paul Tillich. There was no sense of like, this is a theology that can sort of contend at Harvard and Yale and so on, which is not to take anything away from evangelicalism. It didn't regain the sort of cultural commanding heights. And then the Bush presidency fell apart. There was another sort of wave of deinstitutionalization of people leaving institutional religion. You had a lot of a lot of the working class drifting away from churches. And then you get to Trump, and Trump is a form of reaction, undoubtedly, but he's not a really religious form of reaction. He sort of represents the failure, I think, of religious conservatism and the fact that conservatives turn to a more tribal and sort of race and nationalist-based politics. And Trump is obviously not religious, but he comes out of the sort of Norman Vincent Peale, mm. like he literally attended Norman Vincent Peel's mm-hmm. church as a kid to the extent that he had any religious formation. It mm-hmm. was in that sort of power of positive thinking realm. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that he represents something, it's a kind of right-wing version of Osteen and Oprah. I think it's sort of more a continuation of this religious decadence than a kind of sharp reaction. Like he's but not, you, wouldn't you say well, pseudo-religious? Well, well right? at, this, yeah, at I mean, this point, at this point, with Trump – 
you see how what I'm calling heresy can just mm-hmm. sort of cease to be Christianity mm-hmm. entirely. If, if Norman Vincent Peale is a Christian heretic, then mm-hmm. Donald Trump is the secularized version of that heresy mm-hmm. where it's the prosperity gospel without God, basically. Mm-hmm. Let me outline a hypothesis that I want to get your reaction to. I'm not even necessarily sure that I believe it, <laughs> but I know at minimum you'll be stimulated by it. So if we're going to treat the birth of new left and new ageism as a sort of great awakening, as a sort of pseudo-religious fervor outbreak, that then transmorphs into all the things that we were describing, Oprah growing out of it, etc. And if, which it sounds like you don't totally agree, there's part of the culture war is this reaction to it from the old religious center, maybe we can understand that third great awakening of New Ageism slash new leftism as an attempt to try to redefine the new religious center in mm-hmm. this kind of pseudo-secular way. And Trumpism is just a very crass, very inarticulate kind of hysterical reaction to say, no, that's not going to become our new center. Because there does seem to be a sort of consensus amongst the elite that this new kind of woke culture, for lack of a better phrase, should be our new sort of moral slash pseudo-religious center. Yeah, I I think you could argue that sort of woke liberalism Mm -hmm. is an attempt to either invigorate or reinvigorate the kind of flaccid post-70s spiritual but not religious culture. To basically say sort of Oprah and Osteen aren't enough. We need a new social gospel. We need a more strenuous moralism. And we aren't going to really give it a theological justification. Mm -hmm. But implicitly, there's a theology Mm -hmm. there, I think. There's some people who have argued that fervor on campuses has a little bit of a tent revival feel sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, there's certainly this seeking of purity. Yes. That's going on, like a puritanicalness. Yep. That they that maybe not internally recognized, but it's there. No, I think that's right. And a sense of like self scrutiny, confessing your own privilege, identifying your own privilege mm-hmm. as a means to sort of strip your soul bare before the arc of history, mm-hmm. I guess. I could see that as an attempt to basically sort of return moral strenuousness to American culture in a sort of pseudo religious rather than explicitly religious way. And then Trumpism becomes a reaction to that. But it is just as the sort of woke liberalism is religion without a defined theology. Trumpism is likewise its sort of reaction without a clear theological structure. It's Christianity defined by saying Merry Christmas at your department store and so on. Mm. And So it still has a, is a me-centeredness to it. It's in Christian in maybe almost in name only. Yeah, certainly the, the Trumpier you get, the more me-centric it becomes. I think that you could argue that on the left, there's some sort of groping towards some new model that is meeting tremendous resistance. And on the right, there was a model in the form of religious conservatism that has been kind of abandoned or sort of surrendered itself to Trumpism. If you look at the sort of liberal anxieties that have been poured into The Handmaid's Tale, the Hulu adaptation of this story of Mm -hmm. a sort of right-wing religious theocracy establishing itself in the United States— What's odd is that that's just, notwithstanding Mike Pence, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just not where cultural conservatism is at the moment at well, all. Well, it also seems almost entirely the opposite of where we're going. I see that and I say, this is just a ritualistic beating up of the Anshan regime. Yes. But it's, but it's, a, it's, not, a, but it's, it's a, not even really a good reflection of the Anshan regime. It's this right. it's horrible a dark, caricature. It's a fantasy. Yes, it's a fantasy of what patriarchy looked like. Or what people's desires are. You don't hear anybody talking like this. I mean, I guess maybe some strange, kooky people who 
would even be fine calling themselves the alt-right might think something sort of like that. But even those people would be hard to find. Yes. I mean, I, I think that there's a sort of secular desire for a return to patriarchy, whatever that might mean. But it's very much a non-religious post-Christian view in many cases, this sense that we're going to base this on sort of Darwinian evolution and sort of theories of evolutionary psychology and so on, and where it's effectively a kind of war between the sexes where women have won some big victory and now men have to take their territory back. But that's very different. You know, the world of like pickup artists or something mm -hmm. is not the world of religious conservatism, even if maybe they look similar from left-wing vantage point. But isn't the fact that they look similar kind of the telling point, though, is how little effort to a certain extent that kind of super secular but also unacknowledgedly righteous pseudo-religious realm misunderstands maybe the religious conservative. They don't necessarily extend themselves a great deal to try and understand how that mind frame actually works. Yeah, I think that's right. I want to kind of shift for a minute here. Um, you've written that in terms of these fights that are going on on campus, especially on campus, but also in the media, that the push for free speech alone and even intellectual diversity alone is not enough in your mind. I certainly think you agree with that and or would probably be a, a free speech absolutist or close to it. But at the same time, shaking your head a little bit. No, go on, go uh, on. But, but at the same time, you don't think that the people who are advocating both on campus or through the media or through other outlets who are arguing against those who are pushing very hard for deplatforming, have these very dogmatic positions, protecting a certain kind of woke identity and a woke position, that the people opposing them need to have an agreed-upon system of values, yeah, I mean, I guess I'd put it this way, and this goes back a little bit to the conversation we were just having, but what I think the woke perspective gets right is that sort of a pure libertarian individualism is not satisfying to people. It leaves people adrift. It doesn't, you know, it sort of tends to descend into just this kind of pure looking out for number one sort of ambitious selfishness, which is the, mm -hmm. I think, the defining culture of a lot of, you know, if we're talking about universities, a lot of elite universities, right? Like when I went to college, you know, you go into a place like Harvard and you're told, oh, it's the Kremlin on the Charles and everyone's <laughs> a communist and you get there and instead everyone wants to be an investment banker. And that that's <laughs> like the defining spirit mm -hmm. of those schools. It's sort of, you know, it's a meritocracy where you're in frantic competition with everyone else and who has time for values, whether they're right wing or left wing. So that emptiness, I think, is what the sort of woke progressives want to fill. And what that means is that if you answer their desire for meaning and purpose in education by just saying, no, the purpose of an education is to just sort of set up a permanent debating society where everyone gets to say whatever you, they want, you aren't sort of filling the void that they correctly discern. Now, how you actually fill that void in a society as diverse and complicated as ours, I freely admit that I have no idea. I think it's easier for religious schools, Catholic schools that, you know, are based on still on some sort of religious commitment to use that religious commitment to effectively remoralize campus life a little bit. But I, I don't know what exactly Harvard or Yale or any of these mm. schools should do instead. But I, I think it's, you know, if you look at the people who are the critics of progressive activists, the, you know, the people who now, you know, my colleague Barry Weiss at the Times called them the intellectual dark web, right? This group. It's of, a strange it's phrase. A very, it's I a, can't believe that they can self-identify with such a you know, negative connotation. 
Well, yeah. You know, everybody, it's like the neoconservatives were called that as an insult at first, and then they accepted mm-hmm. it as a badge of honor. I mean, people, you know, you take the label you're given sometimes. But this mm-hmm. is a group of people that have tended to make these kind of, you know, we have to have more free speech on campus. We have to have open arguments and so on. But I think it's telling that one of probably the most popular figure in that group is Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. right, who yeah. is this University of Toronto psychologist who makes a version of the sort of libertarian argument. We need free speech and, you know, we can't let the social justice warriors sort of shut down debate on campus and so on. But what he's actually famous for mm-hmm is YouTube videos where he educates young men and young women, Mm. but he's clearly pitching young men Mm. in sort of Jungian cosmology, the Bible, you know, these sort of... Well, he mixes Jung with the Bible. Right. The interesting thing, he's really got a pretty unique pseudo-metaphysical take on things. And I think to a certain extent, almost that's as big a reason why he's popular as anything. Yes. No, I think think people are drawn to his attempted re-enchantment and remoralization of everyday life. Mm. And I think there's a lesson in there, which is that is what is sort of felt to be missing from a lot of Western culture, elite culture in particular. And to the extent that there is sort of an alternative to woke progressivism, it has to partake of some of that. It has to mm-hmm. be moralistic and metaphysical in some way and not just be sort of procedural, not just focused mm-hmm. on the idea that, well, it's really important to make sure that when Ben Shapiro gets invited to <laughs> campus, nobody protests him. I mean, look, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't want to get protested myself. I don't want Ben Shapiro. You, you haven't been protested yet? You no, but I'm— You have attempted I'm, to be disinvited? I— don't th- I mean who knows what goes on behind the scenes but, but no I mean I'm I'm a New York Times conservative we're all considered yeah. you know sellouts yeah. to begin with <laughs> and so on and I've I've spent my whole career in sort of elite liberal institutions so I I'm probably you slip not underneath the radar I'm, well, I'm not I'm not I don't think I'm considered threatening in precisely the same way that like even like a Charles Murray is I don't write about race mm. and IQ mm. and so on I think if we were in a different landscape where religious conservatism were clearly ascendant, if we were really on the way to Gilead, then the fact that I am, you know, a pro-life Catholic might be deemed more triggering on campus mm-hmm. than it is. But as it stands, I don't get the sense that I'm that I'm seen as dangerous, which maybe doesn't speak well of my mm-hmm. boldness <laughs> or something. Well, maybe it speaks well to being witty and clever, though. You're criticizing them, but you're not necessarily hitting their buttons. Well, I have I mean, a it strong— It seems like Peterson almost delights in yeah, hitting P- their buttons, yeah. at least P- a little Peter, bit. Peterson, especially on, on Twitter, right. Shapiro really likes the fight. My pose is a little more sort of ironically detached, mm-hmm. probably, as you can tell from this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about intellectual diversity. I went to journalism school— at NYU quite a long time ago at this point and, you know, not being from the East Coast and having kind of a a unique perspective that maybe you can kind of sense. I have to say, New York media culture is possibly the most majoritarian and conformist culture I've ever been around. You really had to be very much within this mainstream and definitely, I would say, kind of mainstream, middle-of-the-road, liberal. And if you were outside of those boundaries, uh, to the left or the right, either one, it didn't necessarily matter, you were considered a crazy person. And one of the things I also found very interesting about going through journalism school in New York, because I was definitely the only person in journalism school with a background, a graduate degree in political theory, nobody knew anything about politics. And you had all these people who 
we're eventually going to end up writing about politics and having these cultural analysis, kind of cultural criticism jobs. But none of them really had any kind of formal education on any of this. And there were these incredibly rigid boundaries, which I do see reflected to some extent in the New York Times in a way that is not necessarily that there isn't intellectual diversity on the Times op-ed page because they employ you actively. They employ other. As of right now, yes. But there certainly isn't any kind of regional diversity. You know, I mean, and I think you would be even hard pressed. And and this is where I, I may be ignorant. I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody on the Times op-ed page who doesn't have an elite university background. I think that in general, elite journalism has become an elite profession. Some of the amateurishness that you Mm -hmm. encountered is just inherent in journalism, Mm -hmm. right? You know, journalism is a profession for dilettantes and amateurs Mm -hmm. and people who go into a story and become an expert on it for six weeks and write a piece or a day day and, and forget about it. And that's always been part of the profession. And it's not impossible to avoid it. There are legal reporters who've gone to law school and financial reporters who have graduate degrees in statistics and so on. But in general, the dilettantishness is sort of baked into mm-hmm. the nature of the profession. And it's obviously a sort of eternal frustration to actual experts that they are constantly mm-hmm. sort of having their views filtered <laughs> filtered through these amateurs. Yeah. But what is different now or certainly has become different over the last 30 or 40 years is the extent to which, yeah, journalism has become a – it was sort of a traditional blue-collar profession in certain ways and at the highest levels has become a kind of part of the meritocracy basically Mm. where you do have people coming in from outside but there is a sort of heavy bias towards elite educations, towards the Acela Corridor Mm. and all the rest. And you're not wrong about that and that is sort of a persistent challenge that the people who run these institutions, I think, are quite aware of. But they also are challenged by the fact that they are writing for an audience Mm. that is also in that world, right? Primarily, yeah. Yeah. So when The Times hired my now colleague, Brett Stevens, from Mm. The Wall Street Journal, basically, and Barry Weiss, Mm -hmm. whose piece I was just citing, these were sort of two right-of-center hires added in the aftermath of Trump's victory, part of what I think has been a general campaign by my boss at the op-ed page to Mm. sort of get a wider diversity of voices in and basically try and address part of that problem you're describing, Mm -hmm. that the world has turned out to be a lot more complicated and chaotic than we thought, Mm -hmm. and the Times op-ed page should reflect that. Well, Well, I mean, it's interesting you bring up Barry Weiss, though, because from what I observed, there seemed to be a pretty intense hysterical reaction. Well, that's People mislabeling her, people calling her Nazi, but I mean, some people, I mean, minimum calling her a neoconservative, which I don't think is a real accurate reflection of her actual policy. No, that's, well, and that's what I was going to bring up, in fact, that this sort of move toward diversification and not even like extreme diversification Mm. since Mm -hmm. Weiss and Stevens were both anti-Trump. It wasn't Mm -hmm. even like the Times was Mm -hmm. adding a pro-Trump columnist, which it it has its published pro-Trump op-ed writers, but they don't Mm -hmm. have a regular columnist who's seen as pro-Trump. And just doing that exactly prompted from a very sort of agitated segment of our audience a Mm. very strong reaction. And this sense, especially since with Trump as president going after the New York Times on Twitter and calling us the failing New York Times and so on, The Times as an institution has commercially benefited from that because you have lots of people who don't like Trump who are Mm -hmm. like, well, it's my patriotic duty to subscribe to the New York Times. But then they read the Times and if they encounter somebody who they disagree with, Mm -hmm. they'll say, well, what happened? I I thought I was reading The Resistance and instead I'm reading The Times. So that's sort of this. But that's somewhat new in our culture, though, right? You know you're in an echo chamber and you don't really care. And you're just like, hey, give me back the echo. I don't don't necessarily. 
really want yeah, other critical I, voices. I, I, I don't. I mean, I don't. It seems new. It's hard to exactly tell because uh-huh. in the past you had sort of newspaper monopoly, is <laughs> where you didn't have the internet. You would just read your local paper. Audiences had less power. So part of what we're seeing mm. is this more empowered audience that has more choices that naturally people gravitate towards echo chambers when they have choices, maybe. But but either way, as a Times person who is a conservative who I defend my employer to both – I used to defend my employer to conservatives who would critique liberal bias. But now I'll also find myself defending my employer to liberals who think that the paper has become too soft on Trump, right? There's this whole – there's a segment of the readership that basically wakes up every day and if the Times' headline isn't fascist pig still in power, they're like, what are you doing, New York Times, you know? So it's – it's there's a lot of cross pressures, I think, that shape like what different people think of as media bias. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. To listen to part two of my interview with Ross Douthit, check back tomorrow. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Mensch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.